This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. As is now well known, in November 2016, millions of evangelical Christians supported Donald Trump for President of the United States and helped lead him to victory in his stunning upset over Hillary Clinton. Besides Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr., among the better-known evangelicals who have supported Mr. Trump are James Robeson, TV personality, David Jeremiah, Robert Jeffress, and Jack Graham, all pastors of significant megachurches in the Southern Baptist world. But until recently, there hasn't been as much focus on Trump's more charismatic and prosperity gospel supporters. In fact, many in these circles were convinced to vote for Trump in 2016 because prophets in the movements believed Trump was destined by God to become president. Two lesser-known charismatics who have been on Trump's evangelical council are Gentizen Franklin, senior pastor of Free Chapel Worship Center in Georgia, and Robert Morris, pastor of a non-denominational charismatic multi-site megachurch of some 36,000 attenders in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Two prominent supporters, both associated strongly with Prosperity Gospel, are Kenneth Copeland and Paula Voigt both of whom have been a part of the president's council. White has had a particularly close pastoral relationship with President Trump starting years before he took office. And recently, she's been appointed by Trump to the Office of Public Liaison, which is responsible for communicating and interacting with various interest groups. Today, we want to delve more deeply into Trump's charismatic and prosperity gospel supporters, especially Paula White, to better understand the concerns and anxieties and passions of this part of the religious landscape in the United States. This is Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and quick takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Mark Galley, Editor-in-Chief of Christianity Today. And normally, uh, Morgan Lee would chime in at this point. Actually, she would chime in first. But she's away on assignment for Christianity Today, or what we call CT Global, in Indonesia of all places. I'll talk more about that later in the show. I'm doing a solo today, so hang on. Bear with me. I have to manage both the electronics and our guest, who can be a handful sometimes, if I must say so myself. He is James Beverly, Research Professor of Christian Thought and Ethics at Tyndale Seminary in Toronto, Canada. He is also Associate Director of the Institute for the Study of American Religion in Texas. He has been a contributor to Christianity Today, Faith Today, and Charisma Magazines. He is the author of more than a dozen books, including Nelson's Illustrated Guide to Religion and Religions A to Z. And most recently, and relevant to our today's broadcast, is Donald Trump, God and Christian Prophecy, a Guide to the Prophets and Prophecies in the Charismatic Pentecostal World Concerning the 45th President. Welcome, Jim. Great to have you. I should tell our listeners that I might be a handful, but I've lost a bit of weight lately, so I'm less of a handful. Well, that's a good thing that you lost some weight. Uh, we originally cemented our friendship, was it at Aditka's, where we had that a massive steak one night? I just remembered you paid or CT paid. CT so paid, it was, yes, it was, so... It was a great moment. <laughs> and it was a great meal, as I recall. So, yeah, Jim and I go back quite a ways, and he's been his editor at CT. He's done some marvelous work for us right after 9-11 on the, uh, Islam and the relationship of Islam to Christianity or Islam in general, helping us understand it. He's been plaguing me to do something on these prophets 
and the charismatic movement, and this became a perfect opportunity to do that. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. In terms of this interest, when did you first notice the affinity that many charismatic Pentecostals and prosperity gospel people had for Donald Trump? It was probably late 2015, but I know by 2016, like January, February, I was really tracking the prophets. I've studied charismatic and Pentecostal prophecy for probably 30 years in relation to the Vineyard and then the Holy Laughter Movement and then the Toronto Blessing. So I was continuing my interest when I picked up all the focus on Donald Trump. At first, quite a few of the prophets were uh, talking about Ted Cruz as their man. But some of them supported Donald Trump even when he was not popular among evangelicals or Pentecostal charismatics. After he won the nomination, they really went for, for him almost totally. So I've been tracking it now for, I'd say, over three years easily. Yeah, well, when you first told me about that this was a phenomenon, I was just, I was fascinated. So tell us about some of the main prophecies regarding Donald Trump. When did they start? How, whites, how widespread were they known in these circles? And so forth. Some prophets claim that they knew about Trump as future president as early as 2012, but I think those ones aren't that accurate. I think they use some misleading argumentation to try to say God told them that early on. The most famous there is Mark Taylor, who had a movie about about his prophecies. So he says God told him in 2012 that Trump would be the president. Then Trump didn't win. So then he used a hermeneutical maneuver to say, well, it was really for 2016. But by 2015, you have pretty well-known prophets who are saying that God told them he's going to be the president. Lana Vouser, for example, in Australia. Their big person, Jeremiah Johnson out of Florida. So those are a couple of the big names, Hank Kuhneman. By 2015, there's a pretty solid group of prophets who are saying he's the next president. What made his name come? Well, <laughs> we're we're going to be skeptical here and assume that it isn't just the Holy Spirit that's doing this. But his name comes something to notice in 2015 when the rest of the world had hardly been noticing him as a candidate, mostly as a TV personality. So what, what do you think is going on there? Right. If you take the prophets who sound the most credible— they say, out of the blue, they, they believe God told them that Trump would be president. There's one woman, I can't remember her name, but one woman who said, I wasn't really interested in politics. And then God spoke and said, Trump will be the new president. I mentioned Lana Vouser in Australia. This sweet, innocent woman makes a prophecy that Trump will be president. Then she gets slammed. This is 2015. And you can tell she's shocked. She didn't know that her political announcement would create so much anger. There's also a business guy in the Pentecostal world who says he was told that Trump would be president. One thing that's interesting about these people is they have it, you can see it on the internet before Trump is chosen as the Republican candidate. You don't want to put too much into that because in 2012, most of the prophets predicted that Romney would be president. These prophets don't claim to be 100% accurate. They believe their gift is like other gifts. There was a couple of prophecies that the Republicans would take the House in the midterm 2018 elections, and that didn't happen. So they have a—for how many presidential elections and midterm elections have the prophets been active in trying to predict what's going to happen? 
Was it before Romney even? I haven't checked this, but I know that the prophets have been doing their stuff for a long time. For the listeners, the best place to see these prophecies is the Elijah List. It's run by a guy named Steve Schultz out in Oregon, I believe. He has 300 and over 300,000 subscribers, and every day he sends out prophecies. You can use the search engine on his website to go back. You can put in Donald Trump and it'll give you all the prophecies about Donald Trump. Did any of them prophesy that Hillary Clinton would win in the last election? No, there's a common pattern among the uh, prophets. They're almost totally pro-Trump. There is a lone voice or two. There's a woman who said Trump will be president and it's proof of God's wrath on America. (laughs) He's a sign of God's judgment, not his blessing. Wow. But almost everybody else is pro-Trump. Now, these people aren't dumb. They know that Trump has weaknesses. They know he can be careless in his tweets, etc., etc. And they know there's some question about whether he's really become a Christian. So they're not dumb, but they're they're definitely pro-Trump. In fact, if you get my uh, book on that collects all these prophecies, some of the pro-Trump statements are over the top. Well, they'll just say how wise he is. They won't make any references or very many references to some of the mistakes that it looks like he made. Now, I I follow American politics a lot, read tons of stuff every day. I've read many books about Trump. One thing your listeners from America will know more than me is the country is so divided. There's basically two positions. I'm for Trump. He's a great guy. Don't criticize God's man in the White House. Or he should be impeached. And this was clear even before he took his vow to the White House. So it's amazing how divided. And the the prophets are simply the ones who go pro-Trump. He's God's man. Oh, here's the latest prophecies about impeachment. He will not be impeached, saith the Lord. God will punish the Democrats if they continue to push for impeachment. And then there's another prophet who says Trump will win two terms and then Pence will be in two terms. Now, one thing readers should know about the prophets, you can't lump them all together. They're individuals. They say different things, even if in general they're united. They say different things. I only know one of them who said Trump would win two terms and Pence will win two terms. But quite a few of them say Trump's going to win in a year. Why are they fascinated with Donald Trump? What is it about him that they find compelling that they want to support him so so fervently, it seems? Some of it's just standard conservative values. Trump is not in favor of abortion. Trump wants to protect the United States of America. There's concerns about illegal immigration. Also, the prophets don't have a high view of Islam, so they appreciate Trump's concerns about militant as long. And then I've read in some of them, I I had a chance to just uh, pop in and out of your book uh, yesterday. I noticed there was quite a bit of reference to uh, anxiety about one world order, the coalition of Obama, Clintons, and socialists. I mean, is that a, a regular theme too? Oh, absolutely. The left are taking over the world. Trump is God's person to bring a wrecking ball to the new world order. Now, I'm close friends with Rodney Howard Brown of famous Pentecostal. He's written three books about this, Killing Uncle Sam, Killing the Planet, 
I forget the third title, but he has a lot of documentation on this stuff. And it's about how the New World Order is a post-World War II creation, and it's run by a Sikh. But it's the usual names in terms of the Rockefellers and other global powers who manipulate politics, just do whatever they want. And it actually started uh, the early early 20th century. So yeah, there's a lot of concern that America's going leftist, It's becoming a hotbed of immorality where conservative values are going to be taken away. And Trump has restored the protection to evangelical and other religious groups in America. So the obvious question is, how do they reconcile their enthusiasm for Trump with his pretty clear and factual moral character, which is which is left out there for everyone to see? He uses foul language, which would be a problem in this movement. He's many sexual indiscretions would be the nicest way of putting it over his career. He acts like a bully. He I mean, these are all these are all matters of public record. They're not a matter of opinion. So how do they understand God's chosen in, in in light of these behaviors. The most biblical way they do it is is say that he's Cyrus of Persia for America, just like Cyrus rescued the Jews. So Donald Trump is being used by God as a bull in the china shop. Yes, he can be rough and tough, but that's what's necessary to take on the Democrats and the powers uh, lined up against America. The other thing they'd say is, I think a lot of them would say he Trump has accepted Jesus as his savior. He's asked for forgiveness of sins. And I guess they might say, like all of us, he has to work on some areas of his life. Paula White, in her book, which I just finished, her new autobiography called Something Greater, unless she's a cold-blooded liar, and I don't believe she is, she has some really nice things to say about Trump, which balance out some of the nasty stuff or darker stuff that you hear on CNN or read in the Washington Post or the New York Times. For for example? The way that Trump reached out to her when uh, she was going through a divorce, she was married once and early on. An early marriage failed, and then uh, she was married to the famous prosperity preacher, Randy White. Randy and Paula built their megachurch in Florida, and then Randy basically betrayed his wedding vows, and Paula's world fell apart. So she talks about Trump reaching out to her in her darkest hours. Oh, she also talks about being walking near Trump Tower and people on the street. Now, this was before he ran for president, but people on the street seem to know him and like him. There's there's that kind of reality. So in terms of these prophecies, it sounds to me like these aren't just really extreme people on the outer edge of the charismatic Pentecostal world, but some of them seem to be pretty pretty central to it and have been endorsed by people who, who are central to it. Who would be some of those more mainstream people who endorse this, all the prophecy talk? Stephen Strang of Charisma Magazine, for example. Stephen has run the most powerful charismatic outlet. He's really behind the prophecies. Also, you can just pick the top leaders in the New Apostolic Reformation, which is the newest branch of Pentecostalism. Believe it or not, I I was just on the phone with my colleague at the Institute for the Study of American Religion, Gordon Melton. He knows more about statistics on religious groups than anyone in America. We were talking about there's 300 Protestant groups or denominations in America, but they divide up four different major big units. There's the Holiness Pentecostals, the Pentecostals like the Assemblies of God, and then there's the Prosperity Gospel, and then the New Apostolic Reformation, which are sort of like milder 
versions of prosperity. I asked Gordon, and we thought together, have we found any prophet in the new apostolic reformation who's against Trump? And he said no. And the same for the prosperity gospel, Kenneth Copeland and the the followers of Kenneth Hagin, to name the two biggest prosperity gospel preachers. So yeah, this is big. These groups, the leaders in the prosperity movement and the new apostolic reformation, we're talking millions of Christians. Stephen Strang's recent latest book has come into the office, advanced reader copy, God, Trump, and the 2020 election, why he must win and what's at stake for Christians if he loses. So it's an unabashed apology for Donald Trump and voting for him. And he does have a chapter on the prophecies in the book. It is, I guess I'm trying to make it clear to hearers that this is not some very far out extremist group that's only followed by a half a dozen people, but this is a, a phenomenon, certainly in the American church, that we we do well to better understand. Oh, absolutely. As you know, I've specialized in studying new religions, and some of them, you know, they have 20 members or 100 or 200. This group, the people who follow Trump and endorse them, who are charismatic or Pentecostal, this is a really significant number. Well, let's talk about some of the more prominent ones, just for the sake of our hearers. Let's Let's, let's just briefly talk about Kenneth Copeland and spend some time on Paula White since she's played a much more a central role in Trump's life. But tell us what you can about Kenneth Copeland, his history, his beliefs, and what he stands for. He's born in 30, 1936, and then he, he got into ministry in 1976 or thereabouts. He used to be a pilot for uh, Oral Roberts. He started his ministry, and he's become the most influential modern leader. Kenneth Hagin is viewed as the founder of the prosperity gospel, but he passed away and the mantle fell to Kenneth Copeland. I looked quickly at his worth in a Wikipedia profile. I think it said $500 million. So he's enormously influential. He's mainly known for his crusades and his uh, preaching on television. Like other rich, well-known gospel preacher. He gets criticized for his affluence. Both with him and Paula White, you get people really going crazy that they fly in private airplanes. I learned this from my friend Rodney Howard Brown. Sometimes when you have to preach in L.A. late Saturday night and you want to be in Florida preaching at your base church on Sunday morning, the only way to do that is have a private jet. So both Copeland and Paula White have used private jets for uh, travel. I don't think their rationale is quite as effective with with their uh, mansions. And Paula admits in her book that it it was, if it had been up to her, she wouldn't have bought the uh, mansion in the snootiest part of Tampa. Even there, there's a balance. She she and Randy have this huge mansion. Well, what do they do? They open their house to a thousand homeless people for a party in the rich part of Tampa. Copeland got criticized a lot because he loves his playing. That's too simplistic to judge somebody like that. Both Copeland and Paula White, they could match almost anybody for caring for the poor and reaching out to the needy of the world. I was really touched reading Paula White's life story. She is a really caring person. When she was going through a nasty divorce, and facing the the illness and then eventual death of her step 
daughter and, and her own personal life falling apart in other ways. She said, I went to a nursing home and asked them to pick five of their neediest patients so I could go meet them. And she told them that this is not to be in the Tampa Tribune, you know. That is an interesting phenomenon because a uh, question I was going to ask a little bit later about her, but we'll, we'll come back to that. We'll try to do this in order. Tell us more about Paula White, her history and what she has, what she believes and how she became prominent. I, I think one of the things that you've touched on already, I think the stereotype that we have of such preachers, you know, theologically, I have, I have deep concerns about Paula White's theology and Copeland's theology, but they're also human beings who have attracted lots of people. And I don't think they've attracted them simply because people are stupid. Try to fill out who Paula White is, why why she's risen to prominence. She's not raised as a Christian. The most fundamental thing that happens to her as a young girl is that her father commits suicide when she was five. That did a number on her identity. Her mother had problems. Thankfully, the mother and uh, Paula and her mother dealt with their past and then became best buddies up until the mother's death a few years ago. So Paula is raised in poverty. Life's tough. She has decent moral values early on and continuing. There were people in her life, including the good side of her mother, that taught her moral values. She had a dramatic conversion quite quickly wants to be a worker in the church. She's not. She, she knows that a lot of evangelicals don't want women preaching, so it took her a while to get there, but she was under the tutelage of a pastor who said, okay, first you'll clean the toilets, and then you'll teach the little kids, and then you'll... She was soon become... Quite quickly, she became a dynamic preacher. She was effective. Her ministry caught on. Then she teams up with Randy. They build the famous church in Tampa. And then she goes to a whole new level with her TV show. There's a great quote in the book about, you know you've made it when you're the white preacher on black television. You're the one of the most popular programs. So in 2001 and 2002, she had three to 400 speaking engagements all over the world. Rodney Howard Brown was telling me about meeting her, hearing her, and then he invited her to go with him and his team on a crusade to Australia. So she becomes a megastar. Books, television, along the way, Donald Trump is watching her from Florida. They had bought this small TV network, Paula did, in South Florida, and Trump's watching her, and then he connects with her. This is, it's either 2001 or 2002. Paula gives two different dates in her material. So Trump calls her and tells her how good she is, invites her to New York to, to meet him. And, but she tells him, I'm wealthy. I don't need your money. I'm well known. I don't need your fame. I'm just here to help you. She really reads, and I believe this is absolutely true. I think she's a very caring person, basically becomes a friend with Trump and his family. And then her influence, well, she has her own world and it doesn't depend on Trump. And then, of course, she becomes his spiritual advisor. The president asked her to come and meet her and pray with her about whether he, she, he should run in 2012. Paula didn't think that was a good idea, and, and Trump agreed. And then in 2015, he asked her to lead up, lead up a movement to help reach out to evangelicals and get them on board with Trump. And that's what happened. Jim Dobson made an allusion to the fact that he thinks Trump, you know, said the sinner's prayer with Paula White early on. Is there any credibility, credence to that? One, re one reason I got the book was I knew she would be talking about that issue. And it's clear in the book that she believes Trump has accepted Jesus 
as his savior to use evangelical lingo. I don't remember where it, where she says I led him in the sinner's prayer. It's just, it's clear that she believes he has accepted Jesus. Of course, Mark, to some people, that would be just a sign that Paul is out of touch with reality. Yeah, exactly. Right. And given Trump's other statements, it's sometimes hard to know what he's sincere about and what he's not. So that's how she records it. That's what we, we need to know that. That's fine. She's also been the, in the center of controversy. What are some of the, as has Kenneth Copeland, what have been the ethical or financial concerns that have swirled about her? She was investigated by the IRS and there were no charges. So that's one thing. Well, though, as I was but, reading, and I would, you know, help me to understand how whether I've got this right. I read about those charges as well, and they with, were with, they couldn't be proved partly because she refused to open her books, and she had the court said she didn't have to open her books, so it was hard to prove anything. I mean, is that part of what's going on here too? She didn't cover that, but it's hard to believe if the FBI show up at your door and they think you've committed tax fraud. It's hard to believe the court would say, sorry, you can't open the books. Continue then, yeah. So that would be one set of accusations, okay? Like just reading about her, yes, I know she's wealthy and she likes her expensive high heels, but she comes across a person very concerned about doing the right thing. This is in her book. I was curious, why did her marriage with Randy uh, disintegrate? Somebody uh, called her and said, there's a package outside your door. Go get it. She did, and it was uh, photos and tape of Randy with other women or other woman, I can't remember. Somebody hired a private investigator to check into Randy. She has grounds for instant divorce, but she worked she worked hard trying to save her marriage. Uh, Randy, he had his dark side in terms of not being very kind to her emotionally. I think even though she's wealthy, etc., I think fundamentally she's anchored in caring for people. She mainly gets targeted for being rich and flying in private jets. That comes across as the big stuff. I read the book late last night, but I was wide awake. I thought she might talk about her alleged affair with Benny Hinn. Because when things were falling apart with Randy and Benny's marriage was falling apart with Suzanne, they were pictured in Rome, Paula and Benny. She doesn't talk about that. She said, we're friends, we're facing common peril in our lives, and we just met in Rome. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So she has been accused of, on the theological front, heresy, not just heterodoxy, not just false teaching, but heresy by Southern Baptist Russell Moore, currently president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and a Reformed theologian, fairly prominent Reformed theologian, Michael Horton. What specifically are their concerns, and what do you make of it? I never studied that in detail, other than to know that they accuse her of being careless or ambiguous about the Trinity. 
Also, she's friends with Bishop T.D. Jakes. He's been accused of being careless on the Trinity. He belongs to a denomination that formally denies the Trinity, at least the term the Trinity. It's a little confusing about what they actually deny. All it doesn't get into that heavy doctrinal stuff in her book. What you get the impression that she's a Trinitarian. She uses the word Trinity. Her and her husband, Jonathan Cain, the famous member of the rock group Journey, they had three separate weddings for three different contexts. And she said the three weddings reminded her of the Trinity. I don't think Paul is sophisticated theologically, but there was nothing in the book that made me think she's a heretic. Well, some people would say that her very championing of prosperity gospel is in, is in itself a heresy. What's your take on that? I think you can divide prosperity teachers into two to make it simple. They're the ones that are so into health and wealth that they would say absolutely dangerous and false things that really crush people. Like if you tell somebody who's dying of cancer, it was it's your fault because you didn't walk in victory. That, I think, is the darkest side of the prosperity movement. The other thing that you can do is you can beat a good idea so much drum a certain way that it leads to misrepresentation. So for example, if all you talk about is God wants you rich and he wants you healthy, if you walk in faith, nothing bad will happen to you. If you do that, you're going to end up either enormously guilty or deluded. I don't think Paula goes down those roads. The biggest thing that I picked up from the book is how much she goes out of her way to care for people, how sacrificial she and Randy were when they started their church. And of course, after, I think when they first started, they were on food stamps. Yeah, no, that's uh, what I but, read. Yeah. And then after their church becomes su successful, I think it was the seventh largest mega church in America, they have enormous programs to reach out to the poor. I think she might overdo some of the prosperity themes. But there was no outlandish statement in 270 pages. She has had so much suffering in her life. Father commits suicide, mother really into liquor early on in her life. First marriage doesn't work. And then she marries Randy and that falls apart. Then her stepdaughter passes away of a struggle with cancer. Her son from the first marriage, gets into drug use. So she's had enormous suffering and nowhere does, I mean, she'll admit her own mistakes in life that have hurt her, but there's no sense at all of that happened because I didn't claim total victory. She knows people get creamed by reality. I've noticed among those who are trafficking in this world of either prosperity or semi-prosperity gospel, like uh, Joel Osteen, among others, when I look at like Osteen's television audience, I am just surprised at how interracial and multicultural it is. Is that true of Paula White's congregations when she was uh, uh, preaching? Oh, absolutely. She flew to L.A. once to uh, have a ministry among the black section of L.A., where it's the Bloods versus the Crips. I think that's the two gangs. She's just been super at racial integration. No problem there. She's an example to other Christian leaders. By the way, I just thought, Mark, of probably people listening and think I must be just sold out to the 
prosperity gospel or the president. Just on Paula, here's one thing she does that I think could be better. I'm on her email list, so I get messages from her, you know, and the computers know how to call me Dear James or Dear Jim. So then the message will say something like, what's going to happen in my life? You are going to be, God is going to restore your past stuff, and God is going to have greater breakthroughs for you, etc., etc. Well, it reads like a personal email to me about what's going to happen to me, but I know it's sent out to millions of people. I think there's something misleading and harmful in that kind of generic message. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, one of the, I should tell the listeners as well, one of the reasons I wanted you on the show is that you have studied the, this, this group very deeply and for many, many years. And I know from our larger conversations, you're not necessarily sympathetic to a lot of what's going on there. So, but you would, you, you're doing your best to give a fair minded view. And that's what I appreciate. In terms of the outreach, I would just add to that. One of the things we have to do as just human beings, if someone else has risen, whose star has risen, we have to try to figure out all the different things that are going into making them popular or making them someone that other people want to listen to. And so in my research, I found the mayor of Apopka in Florida, when she was a senior pastor of the New Destiny Christian Center, said... Paula White's church's mentoring of school students, donating food to the needy, assisting families victimized by violence, and ministering to help young women trapped in the adult entertainment industry has been inspiring. I see her doing it in the community. It is a tremendous value to Apopka and Northwest Orange County. I just think we have to see that as part of the larger picture of Paula White as well. You know, the other thing that I picked up from the book, which was... uh I'm going to tell people that it it was an inspiration. She's been very disciplined in prayer and fasting. And even though I've lost some weight, it wouldn't hurt me to fast some more. She's been very faithful to a, a focus on her spiritual life. She records things in a journal and her new book has accounts of what's going on in her life. Even in the midst of all the fame and the money and the popularity, and now, you know, she has a picture in her book of getting on Air Force One. Even in the midst of all that, it's clear that she wants to focus on following Jesus. I would love to talk to her privately and and ask her if her role as Trump's pastor involves some talk, blunt talk about ways that he could improve. Yeah, that would be interesting. But yeah. of course— since she's a friend of his and pastor, she's, as I would expect in the book, she's very discreet. Some people think that Trump's evangelical friends should basically go on CNN and trash him. Well, sometimes they do criticize him. But, you know, as you know, if you watch CNN, they trash Trump regularly enough. They don't need help from evangelicals. <laughs> you know, if I was an American, I would tell Americans they should vote for Trump on this simple level. And I recognize it's simplistic. The fact that he's still standing after unrelenting criticism, even before he won the nomination and then especially after, it's astounding. Now, that doesn't solve the problem because people can can be really strong and stick with things even if they're going down a wrong path. Yeah. yeah. So we won't we won't settle the impeachment issue today, Mark. Okay. You're a Canadian, but you follow American politics quite closely. So you know that there's a tremendous amount of anxiety among a large portions of Americans who are aware of who Paula White is or what they think she stands and what she thinks she stands for. Do they? And they're very concerned about her relationship with the president and his her now being on this advisory council. What What do you imagine they're they're concerned about? What's making them worry so much? Well, Trump's enemies would worry that she's 
a Trump supporter, that means that she's not to be trusted. You know, when it was announced that she had this new position at the White House, right away there were major nasty stuff against her in the New York Times, for example. They said, like Trump, she's thrice married and lives in a mansion. They're worried about her simply because she's a fan of Trump, and uh, they'll accuse her of being a bigot because she's evangelical. But her book shows that she's really good at reaching out to people, and I think she would defend the religious liberty of, of Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, etc. They're concerned about her. Concern about Trump is not going to go away. It'll only—sadly, it's not looking like— there's going to be an easy fix for the Democratic-Republican animosity. thought of writing an op-ed saying, you know, how about the Republicans and the um, Democrats read the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not lie. That would be a good one for modern politics. <laughs> or, or love your enemy, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you get the verses in the Bible about uh, honor those in authority. People say Trump's a dictator and the equivalent of a mafia leader or worse, or, you know, compared to Hitler. I mean, just think what Trump and his family endure in t- terms of nastiness. He shell, um, he shells out plenty of nastiness himself. He's hardly. Oh, oh I agree. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's hardly innocent. He, he, no, no, I agree with that. He. I've often said to people, you know, if Trump would talk to me, I could tell him. 10 things quite quickly that if he did them, he would be a better president. <laughs> but obviously, he has people around him who have tried to tell him things. And, you know, maybe he's better than he would be otherwise. Let's conclude with this. You're a scholar, so, you know, I know you're not in the business of making prophecies yourself. <laughs> but I always like to push the envelope. So if Trump loses the next election, despite all these, all this support from the charismatic Pentecostal prosperity world, what does that pretend for the ministries of Paula White and for these other prophets? Nothing will stop them in terms of their work. Well, take Paula White. Even if Trump loses, she's a megastar. Her empire won't crumble unless she does something catastrophically stupid or immoral. So I don't think she'll notice. She may not be on Air Force One, but but her ministry will continue worldwide. With, with the other prophets, a lot of them are small uh, ministries, but but none of them have linked their prophetic integrity to being accurate about Trump. If they're wrong, they admit it or they try to explain it away. But sometimes they're very blunt and saying, I really the prophet who said Trump was going to win in the midterm this time, he admitted he was wrong. I don't think that if Trump loses, I don't think they'll lose in a big way, except in this sense. If the Democrats uh, get power in the House and the Senate and the White House, I think they could distance evangelicals and the prophetic crowd in subtle ways or explicit ways. Because, you know, as you know more than me, things can be nasty in Washington. All right. Well, that's been very, very helpful. Jim, I really appreciate your insights into this into this world. By the way, uh, the book you looked at is the second edition, probably. A third edition's coming out January, both print and digital. It'll have the title. We haven't made our mind up. It'll either be God's Man in the White House or God's Man in the White House question mark, and then subtitle Donald Trump Christian Prophecy. Even if this question mark isn't there, I make clear in the book, I didn't do the research or write it to predict the future or to say what my personal beliefs are. In fact, I'm the kind of scholar person, I really don't like to go public until I know something so well that I 
fight the devil over it. And, you know, I'm still thinking about whether Trump, who who I would vote for in the next election. Of course, that depends in part on is it going to be Joe or or, uh, Warren or Sanders or anyway, my new edition's coming out. It'll have the prophecies from late 2018 up until about a week ago. Okay, great. So this is the type of conversation we have on Quick to Listen, and this is the type of conversation we have in the pages of Christianity Today, which is your subscription to Christianity Today makes it possible for us to have this podcast. As many of you know, we have not been extremely sympathetic to the Trump administration on many fronts, and we haven't been very sympathetic to the prosperity gospel and that part of the world. But part of our job as journalists is not merely to weigh in when we disagree, but to also try to understand the people we disagree with. And such was the theme of today's show and what we try to do in Christianity today in general. So I, I do encourage you all to subscribe so we can keep doing this sort of thing, made possible by your subscriptions. So uh, go to order CT slash podcast, order CT slash podcast, get a subscription, get a gift subscription, or make a donation to the ministry. We are a nonprofit, and we do depend on your your efforts. Uh, like one of the things we, we do, uh, one of the things we're trying to do is reach out beyond the borders of the United States. It's understand what uh, Christians are doing, believing, act, what their challenges are all across the world. We've started a new initiative just this year called CT Global in which we are trying to make contacts and build deeper bridges with people we know in Africa and Asia. That's where Morgan Lee is this week, making those contacts and deepening those relationships so that we may someday be able to have CT edition in Indonesia or in uh, Southeast Asia, or at a minimum, we'll be able to have contributors from Indonesia and Africa and other places into the pages of the U.S. CT. So all hey, your... Mark, I, let me just put a, a yeah. commercial in here. Because I'm a professor and supposed to look smart, I read widely. There's no equivalent to Christianity Today in the world. You're the best and the broadest. There's other magazines that made me more focused, but to do stories, you uh, risk some money. I, I don't know if readers know this, but CT paid for me to go to India to get a private interview with the Dalai Lama. That kind of vision from a Christian magazine is wonderful. Well, thank you. That's a, That was unexpected, and but deeply appreciated. Thank you. So now we turn to a portion of our show we call Precious Moments, in which we talk about something that brought us joy this week. And I will say uh, what brought me joy happened just yesterday. Uh, I don't know how much I've moaned and complained to hearers of Quick to Listen, but this last summer, uh, starting in uh, late August, I have just endured all manner of pains and aches all over my body. I've tried various and sundry drugs to calm them down. So I finally ended up waving the white flag and going to the doctor, and he put me under, put me, gave me some physical therapy. And just, you know, the physical therapist was very professional. She just, you know, worked my shoulders, especially because the suspicion is this rotator cuff in both shoulders at the same time. And she, you know, she did the various things to test how bad it was. And she said, well, uh, I don't think it's it's that bad. I think with some therapy and uh, some stretching, and I think we're going to be able to conquer this. That little word from that that therapist brought me such happiness. It was like, okay, because I'd started to envision I'm going to live with these pains for the rest of my life, and that's going to be pretty miserable. So that was a moment of joy, and I'm thankful for that. I wish God would heal me instantaneously, but he's chosen not to do that. So if he's going to heal me through this physical therapist, I will be grateful anyway. So there you go. How about you, Jim? I'm currently uh, near my brother's house in Poughkeepsie, New York, two hours north of New York. I came down to visit him after a speaking engagement in Toronto. I live in eastern Canada now in New Brunswick, up by Maine. So it's wonderful to see my brother. We're identical twins. But for over 40 years, 
he's had a beard and I haven't until this summer. I forgot to take my razor on a on an anniversary trip with my wife, Gloria. So I grew a beard. My brother knew it. His kids knew it. But uh, my two nieces' granddaughters didn't know it. When uh, Savannah, this cute little girl, showed up, my brother hid in the kitchen. I was on the couch. And of course, she thinks I'm grampy. So I talk to her like I'm my brother. And then my brother walks in oh, and she looks at him <laughs> and panics could tell she doesn't this does not make sense and she looks like she's gonna cry but we calm her down my brother says to her savannah i'm grampy who's that the guy she was on my lap and she looked at me and said more grampy there you go (laughs) so so i told my brother and his wife and my uh, nephews and uh, nieces what joy it is for to get together as a family i've been working hard lately including on the trump the third edition of my Trump book. So it was wonderful to take a break and be with family. You know, like you, Mark, I've faced medical issues. So I've had two open heart surgeries, spinal surgery, knee surgery, hip surgery. And with like the last heart surgery, the doctor originally said, the surgeon in Toronto said, I don't know, 50-50% chance of making it. That isn't very good. Thankfully, by the time the surgery rolled around, he said, oh, 10% chance she'll die. So anyway, <laughs> it's what Exactly. It's wonder. Even it's though that sounds low. Alive. Yeah, it's when that sounds oh, yeah. low, when it's directed at you, it's like 10%. That's awfully high. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, I was really wonderful to be with family, and it's it's uh, wonderful to be alive. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. The music is by Sweeps. You can find this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you end up listening to podcasts. But if you go to Apple Podcasts, if you want to rate and review the show there, that would be great. We will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.